0: all right well welcome back listeners um this is the peds ortho podcast brought to you you by posna And we're happy to be back with you with this month's July episode. We have an awesome guest host with us today, um, Jeff Neppel, who's the director of the Young Athlete Center from the Division of Pediatric and Adolescent Orthopedic Surgery at Wash U in St. Louis. And we have our normal group of hosts, so I'll let everybody introduce themselves. I'm Julia Sanders. I'm from Children's Hospital Colorado. Hey,
1: everyone. Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans.
2: Hey, everyone. This is Josh Holt from the University of Iowa. I'm apparently not great at alphabetical order. Craig Lauer oh. from Vanderbilt
1: University. Maybe by episode 60, we'll get it.
0: <laughs> Thank you all, and thanks so much, Jeff, for joining us today. We're really excited to have you. Um, we uh, are going to talk a lot about some different things, um, more serious nature of Skiffy and FAI today, but we like to start off um, our guest introductions with a couple uh, more fun questions. So, um, quick question for you: um, What is your favorite surgical instrument?
3: Uh, that's a good question. I would have to say the the freer. I think I've been influenced by uh, some of my senior colleagues in, in St. Louis. Dr. Sheniker I think could do every surgery he does with a with a freer.
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. That seems to be a popular choice for good reason. Um, and then, what is your favorite OR or uh, or at least closing music to have
3: on in the OR? Oh, that's a good question. I usually leave it up to our strong residents or fellows to pick the pick the music. Craig's, uh, Craig's I'm sure, was in charge of that when he was in St.
4: Louis. I just left it to the nursing staff. You got to keep them happy.
0: There you go. You guys got to retain veto power, though, right? Just in case. All right. And then... Um, we all kind of had that one subspecialty in residency that you knew you were never going to do. You know, for me, it was spine and I've maintained that been able to avoid that so far, even in PEDS. So uh, tell me, what was the one thing you didn't want to do?
3: Yeah, I think I'll join you there in spine. Uh, That was a easy call for me. I think uh, I did a little bit of a a different PEDS fellowship as sort of my second fellowship after sports. And I think I might've scrubbed one spine, maybe as a last resort.
0: Well, perfect. We'll move on. So, um, the, the paper that we're going to discuss today, or at least use as a jumping board to, for our discussion, is called Patients with Symptomatic Sequelae of Slipped Capital Femoral Epiphysis Have Advanced Cartilage Wear at the Time of Surgical Intervention. So, um, this is from a... You, you guys have a really strong hip group in St. Louis. Um, first author was Elizabeth Lieberman, senior author John Cloissy. Um And I'll just kind of give a brief introduction. So... Um, from your abstract, the purpose of the study was to describe and compare the cartilage lesions seen in SCIFI and FAI patients. You looked at clinical data, radiographic measurements, and intraoperative cartilage analysis, in 28 hips with SCFI and 304 in FAI, and these patients were either undergoing surgical hip dislocation or hip arthroscopy. Um, Some important exclusions that I think we'll discuss more were patients with advanced arthritis, Um, and then for the FAI group, those who didn't receive arthroscopic treatment alone and then patients in the skiffy group that uh, received epiphyseal reduction those were also excluded. So, some expected findings, um, you know, that I think kind of I expected and you guys expected in your paper were skiffy patients were younger, they had a higher BMI, they were more often male, deformity was a bit more prominent in the skiffy patients, um, and then I think interestingly, you know, the the most common location for cartilage lesions in both groups were the peripheral and the supralateral peripheral. And the skiffy group, I think this is super interesting, had higher rates of central cartilage lesions compared to the FAI group. And then there was also a trend towards higher grade lesions in the skiffy group. So some really interesting findings to discuss, and I think some implications for, you know, discussing management of these patients long-term. So let's start out with just kind of talking about those lesions and the location. I think despite knowing a lot about the geometry and deformity in skiffy and FAI, this is kind of the first description of the patterns of where And what do you feel like is the most important mechanism for cartilage damage in SCIFI? You know, is it the prominent metaphysis? Is it altered kinematics? And how does that compare to FAI in your mind when you're thinking about the morphology of these patients?
3: Yeah, I think that's a good question and kind of uh, why we wanted to look at this. So this is a retrospective look at prospective data um, at our institution over a pretty long period. And I think um, the slips in this group are kind of slips undergoing surgical dislocation. So these aren't the worst slips. These are probably mostly moderate slips, and more severe ones may have an associated osteotomy. So it's trying to kind of compare those middle-of-the-road slips that are somewhat similar to FAI, and I think what raise a lot of questions, are they just FAI? So the findings here, I think, are consistent with what you see when you see these patients that the disease is significantly more advanced. And FAI, we see a lot of cartilage disease, but it's often the mild stuff. Debonding is present in like every single hip we, are, we scope, it seems like. Um, so I really focus here on the data for the more severe rates of disease. So that's cleavage, sort of flaps, or full thickness defects. Those are the really bad actors, I think, in this group. And when you kind of look, you see higher rates in the, in the slip population and more extensive disease. So bigger lesions extending down centrally. And then also the femoral head, you mean only a few percent of FAI has involvement of the head in typical patients we're treating these days versus a lot of these slips do. Uh, so a good portion of these, you mean 25% to 50% have pretty advanced disease despite radiographically looking pretty good.
0: Great. And I think that really aligns with a lot of what a lot of people are seeing as, as you describe those FAI patients with that debonding. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your approach with families? When you're talking to adolescents and families with FAI versus skiffy? what, you know, how do you talk to them about that kind of cartilage damage and what that means for their hip long-term? Because I think comparing these groups, there's definitely some reasons to compare these groups, but then there's some reasons to talk about them differently. So how do you go about that with families and patients?
3: Yeah, so I think slips are still an unanswered question. We understand how to treat slips up front, but we uh, know very little about picking out those slips uh, at a good time. When we treat slips that have symptoms, very rarely do we do we end up saying that's a pretty good-looking hip. Often by the time they get symptoms, they've done a lot of damage to the labrum and the cartilage that we in some ways wish we could intervene um, earlier. My mind always goes back to sort of Gons and uh, his understanding of the cam as kind of the silent killer of the hip. I think that's an important. I think in FAI, we... We know that big male cam, we're going to find significant cartilage disease. And I think uh, skiffies are best put, up, put in that group as well. That we got to be on a high lookout with a major deformity, uh, understanding that there is risk of problems. But for some reason, some of these kids do fine. And that's, I think, the hard thing to know, that I'm not super aggressive about pushing towards surgery in an asymptomatic patient but I really want these patients coming in the clinic every year to hear how it's going and uh, to monitor them for early signs of disease because we treat too many of these hips when they're so far down the road that I'm not sure we're changing a lot in the natural history.
0: Yeah, that was a great segue to my next question. I think the, you know, the question we all have in our mind is what's too soon to intervene in, you know, in an asymptomatic patient, you know, that that you know may have these cartilage lesions. If you went in there and looked at it, um, what's your biggest driver to intervening? And does do these results from this study push you to intervene earlier? Were you you know were you surprised about the amount of lesions or this, the location of the lesions that you guys found?
3: Yeah, I think that's uh, the key question. That I think you could set this study up with even worse uh, slips and show even higher rates of disease. So. I mean, the rates are higher than FAI, but maybe not so drastically different. Um, I think for me, it's, it's uh, watching these kids and making sure they're just not cutting down their activity because of kind of mild symptoms and not admitting to pain. Because I think slips get, especially in, in Missouri, get a billing as obese and inactive. We have kind of an ongoing perspective look at that that really shows many of these kids are actually pretty active. They may be overweight to start, but this starts a pathway of decreased activity increased weight, and everything kind of cycles out of control. So I pay a lot of attention to trying to understand what these kids were doing at baseline to make sure they're doing those things, because if they're not, I think uh, the metabolic effects and the—I mean—the some of the other studies in the literature show this is a big problem for these kids' medical health for years to come.
0: Absolutely, and one question that I have just kind of from from my personal conundrum that I run into with these patients is if their hip is asymptomatic but they're having knee pain, which I feel like I run into sometimes, you know, do you consider that symptomatic and how do you think the kinematics kind of play into that and, and do you go more aggressively if they're having knee pain but not necessarily hip or groin pain?
3: Yeah, I think that's still a big question for some reason still a lot of these kids at presentation have knee pain and When we get to older age FAI patients, that presentation is very rare. So um, if we're ever on the fence and those symptoms are similar to what uh, they might've presented with, I think diagnostic injections are a great tool that um, it can give you a little bit of insight on, okay, does that pain go away with an injection? That makes me more confident it's coming from the hip and are a really easy thing to do that. Sometimes I think it educates the patient too on um, why they're stopping running, why they're stopping their activities um, if their symptoms are somewhat atypical.
0: You know, one of the comments in, in your paper, and then I think just kind of as the literature kind of cycles around FAI, skiffy, um, and as we get better, not certainly not me personally, but we as a, a collective group get better at hip arthroscopy. Do you think there's going to be a bigger role for arthroscopy in skiffy patients? Um, and you know, where do you see that going five, 10 years down the line? Yeah, I
3: think, I think there already is that compared to this study is looking at surgical dislocation, but it's dating a little while back. We get better and better at understanding and pushing the limits of slips. I think uh, especially in that mild to moderate slip, there certainly um, is a role, but you got to understand everything. You got to understand the versional change that happens from the slip. All of these slips are a little bit different That osteotomy still is a mainstay and, um, many of these moderate to severe. You may have, I, in some cases, we'll combine arthroscopy if I can get the intraarticular deformity and then do it strict derotation is a not a bad approach, especially in some of these patients are large where a big open surgery probably has higher risk as well. So I think it's, it's uh, arthroscopy is certainly uh, here to stay in slips. It's just a challenge of where to set that threshold at which you have to do open surgery. And that may be different for different surgeons too.
0: Yeah. So one more question kind of along those lines too, as our, you know, we're, we're all at teaching institutions and as we, as we have our fellows that may not have done a separate sports fellowship in addition to a PEDS fellowship like you have, and like some folks have, um, you know, the question becomes, Hey, I want to do some hip preservation and maybe I feel comfortable with, um, with a surgical hip dislocation, how do you feel about, you know, that skill set for hip arthroscopy in these really complex patients? Um, you know, do you feel like you really, you know, you need both fellowships for training? Do you feel like, you know, advancing your knowledge through courses and through experience is enough? What do, what do you think that looks like for for fellows that are graduating um, from their PEDS fellowship?
3: Yeah, I think it's certainly a lot different than it was was ten years ago. That I mean, even coming out of residency, so many people have significant exposure to these things that we didn't have in the past. You add on to that uh, with a fellowship. Uh, every fellowship is a little different on the amount of hip preservation that you get. Certainly, our our fellowship in St. Louis is is very heavy on hip preservation. Um, so I think fellows in general are comfortable with those things. The challenge is some of the issues we deal with in Peds are some of the hardest hip preservation. Things to deal with overall, so that uh, surgical dislocation I think is technically uh, something you can pick up pretty quickly. Doing arthroscopy in a bad slip is going to be really hard if you're not doing a significant volume of arthroscopy at baseline. Um, so it's kind of balancing out those things. And you uh, mean hip preservation? One of the good trends I think is is team approaches. We certainly have had that in St. Louis and having a team of people, whether you do that part of hip preservation or not, where you can kind of bounce things back and forth. I think a lot of people have gone to that route uh, uh, in establishing their care.
0: Fantastic. And on that team-based approach, you guys have a really strong hip program in St. Louis. Um, obviously, Dr. closey is as a huge mentor to a lot of folks. And How do you see that team approach and, and the, the next kind of um, avenues in hip preservation research where do you think the field of hip preservation, sort of within the field of pediatrics, where do you think that's going? What do you think the next big breakthrough is going to be? Because we do still have a lot of pretty basic questions about a lot of these problems. Um, and so where do you see the next breakthrough being?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great uh, a great uh, question for the future. Um, hip preservation certainly is uh now well-positioned within PEDS that uh, we have a lot of people, I think, across all the different major centers who tend to do hip arthroscopy, and many of them have practices that maybe dip outside the uh, pediatric and adolescent ranges to keep those skills uh, up to treat those challenging cases. I think uh, slips probably are, are, are one of the key uh, areas for the future where we got to figure this out more to understand better, and ha- we have risk uh, Assessments for so many things we do, from patellar dislocations to all these things, like we don't have anything close to that in predicting what's going to happen uh, with a slip. And then I think the other avenue is understanding cam FAI. That uh, clearly, this is a uh, has to do with what's happening in our patients and young age groups, and they have that has lifelong sequelae. That um, understanding that I think is a critical step that we certainly made headway, but uh, uh, still have a long ways to go to understand who is going to develop symptoms, given that so many people have these deformities, um, but many of them may go their whole life uh, without problems. So certainly we're never going to intervene in that case until we understand who really
0: is going to run into problems. Absolutely. That's a great synopsis and look forward to Seeing all the research that comes from you guys, because man, it's like every month a bunch of papers. So, congrats on all the great work, and we look forward to reading the next episode. Um, I'd like to open it up to my co-hosts. Um, do you guys have any other questions for uh, for Jeff?
4: Yeah, that's uh, some great work that's gone into this, and um, I like the paper. I was looking specifically at the diagram showing where the cartilage lesions were, and you got into this a little bit in the discussion, talking about you know how that information might affect your approach. And so, you know, we talked about possibly doing scopes more commonly for SCIFI, at least to address the femoral-sided, you know, the impingement lesion, the CAM lesion. Uh, I guess my question for you is, you know, there was the talk of, you know, 25% femoral head lesions or something like that in all the different quadrants. So how many of those were things that required debridement? How many of those were things that required something that couldn't be done through a scope? Um, you know, is there anything that where we should be like, okay, now because skiffy, maybe we should be toning back the amount of arthroscopy we're doing because you can't address these things through a scope? Um, how? What's What's your thoughts on that having been in these hips?
3: Yeah, that's a good, I think that's a good question. The disease and slips, I think, often um, is more diffuse. FAI, we often see very focal problems. So it's 20 millimeters of an area that's involved. Uh, the data and the diagrams, I think, kind of summarize how we see that same disease, but it's spread significantly in the joint. By the time you see changes on the femoral head, I think the cat's out of the bag a little bit, that these are kind of basic cartilage procedures. You're kind of cleaning it up. Maybe you're doing some level of microfracture. Um, I mean, the labrum's kind of ignored in this paper, but the labrum often is, is significantly trashed, not salvageable, ossified those kind of things that it's, it's slips are a diffuse disease often by the time we're intervening. um, And we know the effects on the whole joint when it becomes that inflammatory cascade that I think really to think that we're changing the natural history of these hips, it's the ones that you're intervening when it's a focal problem that have the best chance. And we just can't pick those out yet.
4: So it's it's less like these are the type of lesions you're going to need to Specifically intervene upon more so it's representative of just it's a bad bad disease process at that point.
3: Yeah, and sometimes the diseases you mean it's like diffuse contralateral that you don't really do a lot um, other than wish you you had gotten to this hip sooner.
4: Um, you had mentioned bringing patients back to kind of ask about their symptoms, and you know kids often lie to us about the pain they're having because they don't want their parents taking them to the doctor, and this kind of brings them back. I was wondering if there's anything more scientific we can do. I I know that you um, have done or looked into some radiographic strategies with MRIs and different sequences. Um, Is there anything that you think is ready for clinical use where there's a screening tool to see, you know, how bad this cartilage damage is in a hip and that would maybe drive us to intervene as opposed to just asking the kids?
3: Yeah, I think that's where we need uh, a better sort of biomarker of disease. MRI is uh, challenging enough in FAI. In slips, you have the metal artifact and things that make it even more challenging. So I don't think that's quite there. We've looked at, uh, done some early stuff looking at uh, serum and urine biomarkers. Could we ever have a blood test that would pick up uh, evidence of uh, these kids kind of trashing their hips? That's still ongoing work. Often things aren't as simple as, as that though, that that if I had to guess, I would guess it's not that simple, but hopefully someday we'll have some kind of a, of a target of that. I think for me now it's more sort of understanding what they're doing and uh, trying to keep these kids active Because sometimes that inactivity is a sign of symptoms that they don't want to admit to um, that. If we could really pick that up from the start, I think that helps. And sometimes the you, the patient you have, you can pick up to the, highly active kid who's maybe not on the more smaller side, I think you got to really watch close because they're going to, they're expecting to get back to sports and can really quickly beat up their hip and and need a close eye.
1: What about physical exam for screening? Let's say you have a kid come back with an old skiffy deformity and they tell you they're doing fine. And then you put them in the impingement position and it hurts their hip. Is that enough evidence that they're having damage and uh, they need surgery?
3: Not for me. I think I uh, mean impingement position. Even in healthy athletes, you mean numbers up to twenty-five percent hurt in that position. So I need to hear more on day-to-day function or activity level. Physical exam though is is really important because we look a lot at the uh, slip angle or the alpha angle, but their underlying anatomy really influences things. Someone with uh, femoral anaversion underlying that has a slip tolerates so much more that they might have five, 10 degrees of internal rotation with a moderate slip. You take someone with retroversion with the same slip and they have uh, 20 degrees of obligate external rotation that um, I think if you have obligate external rotation, those hips are going to run into trouble. But sometimes it takes a long time for them to run into trouble. So it's still hard for me to push too hard. Many of those hips may require a osteotomy and that's a big surgery to, to uh, undergo and recover from. And I think patients are, are in general happy after that. But if those are patients who had symptoms and pain, putting someone asymptomatic through that, I think, can be a much uh, uh, more questionable outcome.
2: Yeah, just to change gears a little bit. So I'm curious, you know, in your paper, you're talking about how all these patients who have surgery go through the three months of attempted non-operative management. And I think that's good to, to prove to you and to prove to them and to prove to everyone and to, to show that they're not going to get better. In my relatively limited experience, I would say that patients that I've seen who have deformity on radiographs, I do the same thing. And I think I'm probably 0% of them have any persistent pain relief with those non-operative measures. I'm curious if you have have had success, you know, if you have any idea of what the the denominator is of patients who got better and felt better and stayed better for any real period of time with the three months of non-operative management.
3: Yeah, I think occasionally you can. Um, sometimes though, those patients may not have had uh, intraarticular symptoms, and that can be hard to sort out. I think so. as tendinitis happens in some of these kids from uh, sort of uh, deconditioning, and they're doing certain activities that we don't talk a lot about in, that in hip preservation. But even if you look at, at Andy Penick's study in, in FAI and from Radies, I mean, some of those patients may be extraarticular things that got better with the rehab. So I think. In that case, it, it, it can. And then from the other side, it's sort of prehab in some ways. These kids are weak and deconditioned to start. And if they're even thinking about going through a surgery, the stronger they can get going into it, the better they're going to be off as far as a predictable recovery and avoiding the ups and downs that uh, the deconditioning can, t- can take, whether it's arthroscopy or a, or a proximal femoral osteotomy, any kind of those uh, interventions.
2: Good. And then my other, my other follow-up question is, you know you i think you said you wish we could intervene sooner and kind of identify stuff sooner four or five times and i think that's really the ticket and so i'm curious you know someone who's thought a lot about it like yourself what would that take you know like you said it's a big surgery and to put kids under it who maybe aren't symptomatic that's a hard sell until we have enough data um curious what where does that threshold get crossed that you can see in you have X finding and you can then tell a family like, I promise you this is for the better.
3: Yeah, I think that's a a great question. And it really takes research to give us that level of confidence and understanding of the disease. Uh, We've done a lot in FAI and dysplasia and anchor in St. Louis uh, with John Cloisi and great people on anchor that I think those kind of collaborations are really what we need. And some of that is ongoing, uh, but you mean multiple institutions looking at their, 30 to 100 slips every year. We quickly can figure out predictors of who came back for uh, symptoms. If we can track these patients in St. Louis, these are some of the hardest kids to track because they are from all over the place and um, can be a challenge. But it really takes, I think it's going to take good research to risk stratify patients into a group that is such high risk that you can have equipoise at least to uh, kind of think about offering that to them. Because at, at the end of the day, some families may. Want that proactive approach, and some uh, may not. Uh, But we need some steps forward before we're, I think, anywhere close
1: to that. I've got another sort of general Skiffy question I'd love to hear your opinion on to change gears a little bit. So there's sort of an ongoing trend to think of Skiffies as a little bit more of a rotational deformity, maybe than in the past. And uh, like you alluded to, use a re- rotational osteotomy maybe rather than a flexion osteotomy. Um, how do you conceive of that? And, and are there patients, how do you make that decision for who needs a flexion osteotomy or rotation or anything else?
3: Yeah, I think that's, we don't have great evidence, I think, to sort that out. How how important is flexion in an osteotomy to bring the weight-bearing surface back up a little bit more into the weight-bearing surface of the socket? Um that's another great area where some people approach it this way and some people approach it the other way. The, the derotational osteotomies are very powerful and can certainly restore the uh, motion in the hip. What that means 20 years down the road, I think, is a bigger question. Um, but I think if anything, we've probably started to lean a little bit more that way. Um, even when we're, <clears throat> we're doing open proximal femoral osteotomies, maybe we're putting a little less flexion in than we, than we used to. Um, but another great question that we need, I mean, 100 hips one way compared to another hip, 100 hips the other way to uh, sort of sort that out. Um, that's probably one of the big questions. Remodeling is another great question. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on on remodeling and slips. Aren't these all supposed to get uh, better as one of the debates we have here in St. Louis uh, from the literature?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's something that we debate even within our own group, you know, how aggressive do you want to be and how much, how how long are you willing to watch these, you know, are you willing to keep having it come back and look at you and, you know, the parents are looking at you like, isn't, didn't you say this was supposed to get better, you know, and it doesn't. Um, And so I, I think that's a great question. I'm interested to see what other people think too. I just haven't seen it to be anything convincing that makes me feel at all better about it. But that's, that's maybe my limited experience
4: with it. I think um, I think you're going to have trouble remodeling when you got screws crossing the vises. I think you really need growth to have that. Um, if anything, you're just getting almost kind of the fracture remodeling, or maybe the end gets a little blunted <laughs> over time. But I don't think it's anything significant. Or maybe just, you know, the hips are pretty worked up um, when you first pin them for like a mild or moderate slip. And, you know, just having that stabilized six weeks later or, you know, some time point down the line, the patients feel better. So I'm not so much convinced that they feel better because of remodeling, more so just you've stabilized something and there's just less synovitis or whatever the case. But, yeah, I'm not sure that remodeling is really a thing unless, you know, as we talked about in our a couple months ago using the gliding hip screw that where the growth continues and they saw that the alpha angles were significantly reduced um, that to me makes sense, and although it's not a huge difference, maybe you don't need a huge difference. So, uh, I would think in that scenario, remodeling is potentially real.
1: Jeff, are you guys using any of those uh, Pega Medical gliding hip screws for uh, skiffies? Yeah,
3: not yet. I think it's an interesting uh, concept in the European literature. I think uh, shows we maybe we're missing something with with just. Uh, uh, pins to do these. Uh, we've recently looked at that uh, remodeling concept in our in our group, and the the alpha angle changes are I think, similar to what the uh, gliding hip screw showed with with uh, fully threaded screws, um, but certainly not the 25 degrees that some have published in the literature for alpha angle changes. So um, I don't know. I, I, I need more data to I guess see that they're really growing as much as we uh, think that I think growth is great if we can avoid. Uh, PERSISTENT SLIPPAGE, WHICH WE SEE SOMETIMES FROM OUTSIDE WHERE SCREWS ARE PUT IN BUT IT'S STILL SLIPPING. So THAT'S THE ONE THING I ALWAYS WORRY ABOUT WITH THAT SITUATION. IF YOU'RE COMPROMISING uh, A FEW OF THOSE CASES, IT MIGHT NOT BE WORTH IT IN THE END.
0: RIGHT. GREAT. WELL, um, THAT that WAS A FANTASTIC DISCUSSION. THANK YOU SO MUCH, JEFF, FOR, for ALL YOUR INPUT AND, and THOUGHTS THERE. Um, I THINK, YOU KNOW, MY THOUGHTS ON hit preservation. It's such a, such a cool topic just because I've seen it evolve even in my short uh, career thus far. And I think this is one of those really hot topics that's going to continue to get really exciting over the next five to 10 years. And, you know, all our fellows are super excited about it and all the residents. And I think it's a really fun thing to be a part of. So, Craig, do you want to give us some updates on the podcast? Craig's tidbits? <laughs> yes, tidbit. Craig's tidbits. Yeah,
4: yeah. Um, all right, so not a lot of comments this past uh, month. I think we wore everyone out with the uh, mass quantity of uh, of uh, downloads um, around the uh, PASA meeting. Um, we do have 29,000-plus uh, downloads for the podcast overall over our short history, which uh, is kind of a huge number. That's bigger than the town I grew up in. Um, so, uh, so that's pretty cool to me. Um, I think we're likely to surpass 30,000 downloads with this episode, just based off the reason numbers. So, um, I'm, I'm glad that people are out there listening. Um, hopefully people are kind of liking the more discussion that we're having, um, with our experts like, uh, like Jeff Neppel. Um, but any feedback we would love to hear from you guys. So email us at pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. Um, or find us on Twitter. Uh, Carter and I both have Twitter handles. I'm, I think, just at Craig Lauer. Um, Carter, what's your handle?
1: Oh God, I think it's at
0: Carter Clement, MD.
4: <laughs> that should work. All right. Um, cool. I got nothing else, Julia. Great.
0: Well, let's move right into the lightning round.
4: Yeah, I've I've got my notes right here. So um, I took two um, more kind of uh, stimulating. Uh, thought-stimulating articles. So um, the first one, I just want to ask a question to the group. Um, What is your, or actually, I I want to ask Jeff specifically, you know, what is your routine practice for intra-articular compression screw fixation? Like if you have a a traumatic osteochondral lesion or an OCD that you need to fix, when you get the compression screw in, do you then routinely remove them?
3: Yeah, I think that's a a Great topic. I tend to use the classic uh, metal screws, uh, headless compression screws, and I do take them out. Um, I guess I've seen a few cases that have changed my treatment. It's a little harder in OCD, to be honest, because the healing is more uh, irregular and maybe a little more likelihood of screw settling. Uh, Traumatic fractures really heal really, really well, Um, but I tend to take them out uh, to avoid uh, two years down the road something Uh, moving a little bit and causing problems, but uh, someday I think when our um, bioabsorbable options are good enough, uh, that may be the better route to go.
4: Um, So I think I learned that caution from you because I have been taking them out, Um, but uh, the paper that I wanted to highlight is called Use of Resorbable Magnesium Screws in Children, Systematic Review of the Literature and Short-Term Follow-Up from our series. So this is from Marco Baldini, and Antonio Pompido Giganti from Anconia, Italy. Sorry, fellas, for my uh, uh, Illinois accent. Um, but uh, they talk a little bit about, in their review, the bio- biodegradable metals having greatest tensile and load-bearing properties compared to the polymer and ceramic implants, which are also uh, other types of biodegradable implants. Um, and then these are also osteoconductive. And so magnesium alloy has been used in, they found 20 studies Um, In clinical orthopedics, in the adult literature, only one had a few pediatric patients. Um, But it's actually really encouraging, and I hadn't read any of these before. I had only seen the polymer stuff. I don't know what everyone else's awareness of this was, but uh, it seems to me, Cliff Notes, is that you can get very strong fixation, um, fairly comparable to our other metal implants, Um, The downsides of these magnesium alloy screws is you have a little bit of inability to control the degradation rate. Um, When they alloy them, it tends to slow it down But the concern was it might happen too fast. And it also releases some gas during corrosion. They show an x-ray where you can actually see this gas forming around someone's patella. I'm not sure if that's clinically relevant or not, um, but it's not as though it just disappears. You know, there is a reaction there. Um, So, uh, also, the authors had no conflict of interest, so I, I think this is something I'm interested in seeing more about. Does anyone have any particular experience with it or firsthand knowledge? No, uh, I hadn't saw. heard
0: anything about these magnesium alloys, so I, I was kind of. I think this was kind of a sleeper article because I was like perusing the list and I was like, "Wait, what?" Um, so I think this is actually a cool topic and hopefully something that can add to the to the literature in the future. I think I'd need more before I try it for certainly myself, but uh, it's an interesting thing. Craig, did it give an
1: estimate for how long the degradation time takes?
4: Um, it looked like it's over months.
1: Yeah, and it seems like um, I mean, in general, these I usually
3: take screws out at three months, I mean, it never have felt like that was too soon. I know some people tend to like leave them for six months or something, but especially in traumatic fracture, that I mean, anything probably two months is probably fine. That the you know, work's been done, and uh, it should be ready
1: to ready to go away. So, Jeff, let me ask you a clinical conundrum from a patient I just saw. Um, It was a patellar dislocation with a very large patellar osteochondral defect, it was a good, solid piece with bone on the cartilage. So, um, did a medial parapatellar approach, put the piece back with two Accutrack screws, did a MPFL reconstruction. So, now, to take the screws out of the patella, I suspect the only way, or the most obvious way would be to actually have to take down your MPFL. Is that something you've encountered and how do you address that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, there are pretty significant benefits to maybe uh, going against metal, whether it be bioabsorbable screws or uh, nails um, have some support as well. In a first-time patellar dislocation, for me, I generally am, am repairing and reefing the tissues um, instead of reconstructing. I've had uh, I know some groups have not uh, presented good results with that. We just look right. back at about 50. We seem to see these kids like every other week coming in with big pieces off their patella. Um, that my reoperation rate on those kids in the long term is under 10 percent um, with specific kind of tightening of the medial retinaculum and then the MPFL separately. And the rate of surgery is actually higher in their other knee uh, <laughs> because they develop similar issues down the road. So um, I don't mind going back through my reef tissue. I don't want to cut through the graft because I think you're going to uh, lose all the benefit.
1: All right, I still don't know what I'm going to do. Magnesium <laughs> screws. It sounds like <laughs> <laughs> too late for that. The kids got metal screws in. I mean, the other. The I don't know side. if you gonna did, leave them in or not.
3: The other thing I think that people are starting to do that I haven't jumped on, but I have a number of colleagues who have, is these suture anchor-based systems yeah. to repair with Vicrols that are going to absorb. Uh, so an- like four anchors around the defect, uh, compression with the sutures, uh, probably the most expensive way to do it. But if you can get it to heal and avoid a secondary surgery in that reconstructed patient, that might be a, a home run.
1: Right. I believe some people use those for trochleoplasty to sort of hold the, yeah. Yeah, I think the it's trochlea back yeah. down. It uh, it always makes me nervous to see those pictures where it just looks like the Vicryl's you know, just compressing the hell out of that <laughs> yeah. little line of cartilage, but hopefully it turns out okay.
4: Um, all right. The last article uh, is um, streamlining post-operative care after pediatric supracondylar humerus fractures. Is follow-up after pin removal routinely needed? So can I just go around um, my screen? We'll start with you, Carter, and just say yes or no. Is follow-up after pin removal routinely needed? This is not necessarily what you do. It's just what do you think? Uh, so,
1: yes or no? I, I would say, well, no, it's not that simple. I would say in <laughs> the kids who have, so no, it's not routinely needed. Um, but uh, what I do is if they have good motion straight out of the cast, then I don't have them back. But if I'm worried about stiffness, um, so I'd say I probably see 60 of them, 60% of them back. And I say yeah, it's probably only necessary to see about 2% of them back. All right. And I'm next
4: on my screen. I say no. Julia, yes or no? No. Josh.
0: Yes.
4: (laughs) We're going to dive into that. Dr. Neppel, fearless guest. Yes. Yes. All right. So those that say yes, um, do you have any, I guess, tales of woe where um, seeing someone back four to six weeks, you caught something that they wouldn't have otherwise caught? Or where does that yes come from?
2: My yes comes from they they don't get straight back to activity and and go back full bore when their pins come out. And if you say, okay, come back as needed, no matter what you say after that, they go back to doing everything. So for me, it's it gives them a, a flag post and a benchmark that they know when they come back to see you until then they have some sort of activity modification and limitation. And then when they come back and see you, whether you get x-rays or not, whether you're checking motion or not. I, again, I haven't seen x-ray worries. I haven't seen much motion concerns, but for me, it's it gives them a bench post. To, okay, once I go back and see Josh, now I know I can get back to all my stuff.
4: It's very sensible and practical, but coming from the gentleman who authored the article about unnecessary transfers of super humerus fractures and value-based care, <laughs> I'm a bit surprised, but carry on. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that thought. I think it keeps them off the monkey bars at least for the month. And then after that, what they do is is on their own. I think I also have these patients kind of uh, call in a week if things aren't kind of moving. I think there's a subset of supercondylers that um, do get somewhat stiff that need a little help. And if the parents aren't kind of on top of it, uh, I think it can be harder down the road. So yeah. um, I don't know the perfect time point, but there's a couple percentages of the kids. There's tons of these injuries. So there's tons of these kids uh, that some of them I think we save by not kind of cutting the ties right when the pins come
4: out. So this was a oh this is a retrospective study. Uh, Dr. Patel and Solomito are lead and senior authors from UConn, and um, they did a retrospective review looking at theirs. And you know their summary was that in their particular group, which was not randomized, it was you know, based off of who showed up and who didn't. But um, there were not. Uh, unnecessary or untoward clinical events that happened in those that did not have scheduled follow-up. And then they obviously saw decreases in the number of x-rays and costs um, associated with not scheduling that follow-up. So I I think it's thought-provoking and maybe gives you a little bit more protection if if you think that that's in the best interest of a patient that lives a long ways away. But no doubt, I think um, the conversation you have with the family is very important.
3: How about this? Is anyone to look at retrospectively, though, right? Because the patients that didn't come back, maybe they came back, didn't come back because they're doing fine versus if someone's having a problem, odds are at some point they showed up in, in clinics. So if, I think that's a reasonable research line, but someone's probably got to do it prospectively.
4: Yeah, very much agree. There, there's some major limitations in that study design.
1: Has anyone seen a supracondylar refracture, like in that acute healing period? You know, I've seen both bone forearm diaphyseal
0: refractures. It's an interesting question, Carter, because I, I don't see them back routinely, unless they have a nerve injury that I'm following or a vascular injury that I'm following. I don't see them back. Um, but I we look back at the, the study that I did in fellowship where we looked at all of our type 2s, right? And I don't remember seeing any of these patients as refractures, but there were three refractures, actually, um, in that patient cohort that we wow. studied, um, so I've never seen one that I remember, um, but they do exist. They happen. I, I think it's a really small subset, but they do happen. And um, I've had get, a
1: few that were like way rem- years. But out, I, haven't yeah, ha- I haven't had any in the like in that acute. You know, I haven't had any. I tell them to take it easy for another four weeks after the cast comes off, but I haven't seen any consequences from people. You know, getting back on the monkey bars or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I'm Okay. Not- eventually I don't know what they do after I tell them not to do anything for three to four weeks or until their range of motion returns. I'm sure they are straight back on the playground, but I haven't seen a bad problem with it yet. So, I cracked. love
2: that Julia went complete opposite from her study. PTSD of trying to drag these kids back for a year <laughs> afterwards. Same reason Craig doesn't look at skin folds and hip dysplasia. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: All right, we can move on. That's all I got. So I want to get back to Josh, some honey. to some tribology or tribology and all my PTSD from joint arthroplasty conferences when you're on the the adult arthroplasty team in in uh, residency so talking about mechanical analysis and all the different ways to look at metals and wear and all the different types of wear that we worry about in arthroplasty but also worry about any any metal on metal, obviously. So the study that I'm looking at is out of three centers in England. So the three main centers, three of the four English centers who take care of osteogenesis imperfecta um, from the Sheffield Children's Hospital, the Great Ormond Street Hospital and the Brit- or Bristol Royal Hospital for children. And what they looked at was all of their explanted, explant, uh, telescoping rods that they used in OI I look at all the failures. Essentially, they talked about the very high rate of failures and trying to figure out some of the wear characteristics and if there's something we can change in manufacturing or the way that we implant them to prevent the the wear and subsequent failure. So question, what is going to wear more and potentially fail more likely, the male or the female component? The hollow one, female one. It's got to be weaker, right?
0: I don't know. It's bigger diameter. I was going to say the male one. Julia, cards down. I, I read the study, so I, I can't really say, but I'm going to say on principle that females are stronger than males. <laughs> <laughs> going to put that out there.
4: Oh, <laughs> uh, Now I'm going to get canceled.
2: Okay, Dr. <laughs> Neppel, what do you think? I'll agree with Craig. Female. Yeah, so female, correct. The female is the more likely to show more wear and failure. Um, and it's all types of wear, abrasive wear, sheer deformation, debris wear, all the the different types of wear. They saw all of them in their pretty thorough evaluation of these. The conclusion that they made is interesting, which is there's a lot of things we need to do, and they're manufactured different. I didn't know that, but the male and the female component are manufactured differently, so maybe it has to do with variability in manufacturing, but then also they showed significantly more wear in components that were cut intra-op. So when you cut that female component and have an irregular edge and, and abrasive wear from that, obviously as it lengthens, it's just leaving a stripe and wearing all along the way. So they showed that components that are fit to size or just appropriately happen stance to, to fit just right and aren't cut intra-op, had less wear. So that's certainly a, a thought and an idea. So with a lot of these telescoping things, um, you know, we talked about the, the skiffy screws that you have a size and you put it in the size. And I know with some of the other um, implants that you send them the length and they send you the appropriate size length rods. So you're not cutting them in drop, but um, certainly a lot. And, you know, in the world today of magic rods and some of the the on and off FDA approval and market and things where, where I think we're taking a, a closer look at some of these telescoping things, whether it's magnetic or otherwise, really make sure that we're doing the right thing for patients and not causing sequelae that's unintended.
1: All right. Next up, we've got a uh, recent JPO study from DuPont. It is entitled Risk Factors for Failure of Pavlik Harness Treatment in Infants with Dislocated Hips that are Evaluated with Ultrasound. And uh, basically, they looked at 170 dislocated, and not just dislocated, but dislocated irreducible DDH hips to see which ones would fail and which ones would succeed with Pavlik harness. Um, And basically they found that overall, the Pavlik was successful in about 60% of these irreducible dislocations. And they found three risk factors. You're twice as likely to fail if you start after seven weeks. Three times as likely to fail if it's not a firstborn, which was surprising, but also consistent with some other literature. And you're almost 20 times as likely to fail if it's what they described as a fixed dislocation. In other words, they couldn't bring it down to the lip of the acetabulum. Um, Now, the authors, you know, that sort of sounds like a teratologic dislocation to me. The authors said they excluded teratologic dislocations, and by that they meant syndromic kids. Um, But overall, um, they found that uh, 60% of those, those irreducible, fixed dislocations failed with the brace, but I was pretty impressed that 40 of, 40% of them succeeded. You know, I think I might have called those teratologic and not even put them in a, a harness in the first place. So my question for you guys is, if you see a normal, healthy, non-syndromic kid with a irreducible hip that you can't even manipulate down to the lip of the acetabulum, does that get treated in a Pavlik harness or is that considered a contraindication to a Pavlik harness?
4: Can I get clarification? How do they know where they're manipulating the hip? If you're saying it's Ortolani negative already, you're not feeling a clunk. So are you just feeling it? You're ultrasound. feeling it on the edge. And so ultrasound, you are watching it on ultrasound, it
1: And you cannot get it down to or past the lip of the acetabulum. So that's what they're calling a fixed, irreducible dislocation.
4: I've never watched my Ortolani procedure on ultrasound.
1: Fair enough. That's true. I'd probably be putting them in a putting them in for that reason.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm typically just trying to stretch out the adductors with the harness and then looking at a week and seeing if I'm making any progress from the initial one to the last one um, is, I think, what I've done. But I've never actually seen how close I'm getting to the whip. I don't know. Any other thoughts?
1: What do you think, Jeff? Does that does a healthy kid with a high irreducible dislocation count as teratologic, and, or do they get a trial of Pavlik? harness.
3: That's too young for me. I don't think I have useful (laughs) comment on this. uh, (laughs) Fair uh, enough. That's in Perry Shenker's clinic.
1: Well, sounds like 40% of the time it actually works with the harness, uh, which I was surprised by. So I think I'll continue to uh, give them all uh, a trial. They did the standard three-week trial, uh, which is what I do in uh, in this paper. So uh, I'm going to keep doing that, but it's some good information to at least counsel the families with.
2: Yeah, I'm a little nervous about the seven-week mark, though, because if you look at pediatrics recommendations, it's get an ultrasound before nine weeks. And so if you're if you're talking about getting an ultrasound when kids are, you know, a lot of times you say, just wait and get it later and get an ultrasound when they're six or seven weeks. By the time they get an ultrasound by their pediatrician and they're six or seven weeks and then they get referred to see you and they're a week or two later. Um, Twice that, as likely to yeah, fail. Yeah, it's yep. a little nervous.
1: All right, and uh, last up, we got a paper out of Duke, also in JPO, called the Intrarater and Interrater Reliability of uh, X-rays of Posterior Tibial Slope in Pediatric Patients. Um, so basically, in this one, the authors uh, looked at a bunch of different measures for uh, the posterior tibial slope. You can measure it uh, along the anterior cortex that's sort of the traditional description along the posterior cortex along the shaft of the tibia and then you can also measure the plateau off either the lateral or medial half of the plateau and uh, this the findings weren't that surprising they basically found that if you measure different ways you get significantly different numbers but whichever way you measure it it, it works um, and it's reliable so you just have to sort of know what you're measuring uh, I'm glad we have this as sort of a segue to some some sporty knee talk. So, Jeff, do you, does the posterior tibial slope factor into your uh, your clinical care?
3: Yeah, I think we increasingly recognize its role in, in the ACL world, especially in the adult side, for starting to understand why some patients fail uh, typical ACL reconstruction and might need a little bit more. And we kind of increasingly have other options for really high-risk patients. So, especially in the setting of a, of a revision it, it uh, plays in. Um, and then we see a lot of severe abnormalities in tibial slope and congenitals. Uh, so if you're thinking about reconstructing those knees, uh, even up front, often uh, they may need bony procedures to correct tibial slope uh, to give the graft any chance of kind of holding up in the long run. So I think this is a great kind of uh, basic study to look at things that are well-established in the adult literature and apply them down to um, our pediatric world. And uh, because I think we really need to understand more and more, especially in that um, adolescent group that uh, with transfacial reconstruction is really uh, high risk for failure based on, on recent studies. That's a group we need to figure out a lot better going forward.
1: So if you have a, uh, let's say, pretty close to skeletal mature, you know, essentially a young adult kind of patient with a, very high tibial slope. Are you going to do anything different at their primary ACL? Would you think about doing an LET or anything? Yeah, different? I
0: mean,
3: currently not yet, but I think that's very reasonable. If I mean, if someone can do that study and show a higher rate. Uh, Min Coker's uh, Pluto Group. I've been able to be a part of, which is a, a tremendous uh, look prospectively at six or seven hundreds of these knees that we'll be able to answer a question just like this, um, that it wouldn't take much to show that those, if you identify an at-risk population, the modified Lemaire is pretty simple to do. Um, mean, now has evidence in a hamstring, hamstring plus Lemaire having mm-hmm. some, some value, and that's right down the wheelhouse of, uh, of our trans group, where I think a lot of the interest has recently been quads. I'm not sure quads will solve that issue. Maybe it'll be a little better, That I wouldn't be surprised if someday we're uh, taking more an IT band approach, inter-articular and extraarticular,
4: articular um,
3: in that high-risk
4: group.
1: Yeah, great answer.
4: Can you guys, uh, uh, for the non-sports people, what procedures are you talking about? The LAMER and the, you yeah, get some acronym, CARTER? I've never heard
1: of these. <laughs> I said L-E-T, which is lateral extraarticular articular tenodesis, and the modified Lemaire is one example of an L-E-T procedure. Um, and the idea is it's akin to an ALL reconstruction, where the ALL reconstruction is anatomic, and mm-hmm. these other LETs are a non-anatomic version of an ALL reconstruction. The idea is you're putting some collagen over on the lateral side of the knee, to try to um, help your ACL mostly by, res- by uh, resisting rotation, whereas the ACL reconstruction itself is pretty good for translation. This, uh, this bonus procedure, a lot of people are adding it in these days for revisions or complex cases with some predisposing problem, like arguably maybe in the future, high posterior tibial slope. We know they have a big risk of retear, so let's sort of throw the kitchen sink at them up front. Jeff, uh, am I? Yeah,
3: um, I think that's sort of there? the ALL was all the craze for a while. I mean, New York Times articles about a new knee ligament discovered. Uh, but as we kind of went <laughs> down the road, we realized actually someone had kind of figured this out in the past and uh bringing back these older procedures, and I think now are are uh, being well studied. You mean randomized trials in large groups of uh of patients that there's one ongoing with BTB plus or minus Uh, modified Lemaire. So I think we're going to get pretty good evidence in the adult world. And uh, we're going to have to choose how to apply that uh, to our pediatric and adolescent uh, patients. So I think it's a really interesting uh, change. The Lemaire is actually easier anyway. You leave it attached to Gertie's tubercle, uh, very similar to kind of an IT band. You only need six or eight centimeters and then tacking it down. So it doesn't add a lot. You mean a a couple centimeters of an incision, um, but you just got to pick who needs it. I think is where we need the evidence. Perfect.
4: Thank you, guys.
1: Anyone interested in hearing more, check out PED Sports, our other podcast. We've got several discussions uh, right along these lines.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeff uh, Neppel, for joining us from WashU tonight. Uh, that was a great discussion. Really appreciate everybody's input. Again, uh, listeners, let us know if you have any feedback, comments, criticisms, questions and we look forward to seeing you at the next August episode.